Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Coming up, we'll be asking if Frank Lampard can survive after Everton were heavily beaten by Brighton. And what did Arsenal and Newcastle's draw last night tell us about what both sides have to do off the pitch to get to that next level after a night of frustration for Mikel Arteta? I'm Ian Irving and this is the Athletic Football Podcast. Arteta has gone mad on the touchline. The Arsenal players are surrounding the referee. Newcastle wanted to set up like this. That is not the way they play. They haven't played against any team like this. So it's great to our players. No, I wanted to win the game, but we draw it and, um, and we should have done certain things better, especially in the final third. And, uh, and we should have two penalties to, to win the game and then it was a different story. Right, alongside us today we have The Athletic's Newcastle writer Chris Woff and also journalist and former Arsenal midfielder Adrian Clark. Gentlemen, I hope you behave a little better than the two benches at the Emirates last night. <laughs> Please play nice. Um, Adrian, what did you make of it? It was um, a dramatic nil-nil draw is probably the way I'd put it. It was, it was feisty. Um, my initial reaction is that Newcastle United earned their point. Yeah. I mean, they worked ever so hard. Defensively, I thought it was a, a truly magnificent rearguard effort from Newcastle. Arsenal played pretty well. They pushed. They did their very best to, to break that wall down. But but ultimately, they couldn't do it. Um, so I think in, in the grand scheme of things, I think Arsenal fans should take the point, settle for it, not get too hung up about those two dropped points and, and see it more as a point gain because you can't, win every single home game. That's never going to happen. I I think this was an awkward game that they dominated, that they probably should have won. But I would like to give credit to Eddie Howe and Newcastle because, boy, did they try and spoil that game and they were mightily effective at it. They certainly were. Chris, who are this like streetwise bunch of players in black and white shirts who seem capable of going away to potential title rivals, maybe, at least top four rivals, whichever way you want to put it, and... and just doing whatever they can to get that point. Well, it's it's staggering if you think back to a year ago when you invited on, me onto this podcast to discuss whether Newcastle United could actually stop conceding goals, could sign players <laughs> that they needed this to try Stay and survive in the, in the Premier League. Yeah. And here we yeah. are a year on and we're talking about top four title, all this sort of thing. And it, it, it is astonishing to think how far Newcastle have come, but they, are, they now have the meanest defence in the Premier League, six clean sheets in a row, and they have worked out a way to just re-disrupt the opposition when they need to. They rattled Liverpool when they went to Anfield early in the season. They rattled Spurs when they went to North London early in the season. They rattled Chelsea when Chelsea came to Tyneside just before the World Cup break. And they've gone to Arsenal and after a very difficult first five minutes where it looked like they could get overrun, 
what was so impressive was I think it was the in-game management both from Howe and the players themselves to realise we need to change this a bit A we need to slow it down in any way necessary which they were very very good at committing fouls <laughs> winning fouls as well actually what was interesting was the way that they won clever little fouls particularly Bruno Gimaraes and players like that but also to change things to be far more compact, to, to give support to Dan Byrne down the left after early on it looked like Bakaya Saka, Saka sorry, might overrun him. and But they really managed to shut down and get bodies around uh, Odegaard and Saka. And I thought that Joe Linton and Joe Willock in particular, the amount of ground they covered were just absolutely phenomenal. And that really typified Newcastle's performance. Yeah, there's a piece on The Athletic from Jacob Whitehead today about what Newcastle did to to slow things down and to nullify their opponents as well. The question is, Chris, who does this come from? Is is this all Eddie Howe? It's basically Eddie Howe and his coaching staff. I mean, there was a, there was this side to a Bournemouth, but I just don't think it ever really got rid of If you speak to anyone, any of the players who he, was, who he coached at Bournemouth, or you speak to people who watch a lot of Bournemouth over the years, they obviously had this uh, reputation for being a lovely football inside, which they were, but they also had the hard edge to them. They had the cynical side to them, the professionalism. Definitely didn't come out in the, in the general sort of discourse about Bournemouth that did it no and but that is and he's brought it to Newcastle and I think at Newcastle at a club where uh, there's a lot more scrutiny and also where he can get the fans even more involved at a 52,000 St James's Park that the players feed off that energy and so you see it a little bit more and they went there and it was almost uh, they went to the Emirates and it was almost a sort of we are going to have to to make this game ugly if we are going to, to try and get anything from it. There was an awareness I spoke to people at Newcastle over the course of the last couple of weeks and they know that they are overperforming where they really should be. It's the old cliche but the wages that you pay in the Premier League over time will be the position you're in. Newcastle play mid-table wages. They are not yet at the level of certainly Man City and Liverpool but even at Arsenal so they were going there knowing they lacked something in attack. They changed the game slightly beforehand and then within it they decided right we can't be as, as open, give the width that Arsenal had early on. We need to just try and disrupt this game. And so it comes from Eddie Howe, but also Jason Tindall on the touch is fascinating because I don't think you really have anyone else in the Premier League where it is like a duo and whereas Howe is the calm one and he's passing on instructions, Jason Tindall's like the provoker-in-chief and he spent the entire game winding up Mikel Arteta speaking to the fourth official. He rolled the ball on at one stage when Arsenal wanted to try and take a quick throw in and that sort of, he he is sort of the agitator-in-chief for Newcastle and he, he's a he's He's basically Yang to Eddie Howe's Ying, I think. Yeah, there's a there was a real juxtaposition between the two sets of supporters, the two benches, the two teams. Adrian, the the, the sort of emotion it brought out of Arsenal, I, I said before we started recording, there was something sort of quite reassuring about it all. This is Arsenal. This is how they deal with pressure and title races and, and everything else. The types of emotions it mm. brought out. It's amazing how they just reverted to type. It's brilliant. I mean, Mikel Arteta, he's an open book, isn't he? he he's, there's nothing closed about him. He, he, he will wear his heart on his sleeve. But yeah, I th- and I think that rubbed off on the crowd. There was a feeling of injustice. I, I didn't come away from that game feeling that Arsenal were robbed. Well, he, he called it scandalous, I'll, I'll didn't he? Uh, Mikel Arteta yeah. that, you didn't get, that Arsenal didn't get two I, penalties. I, I think that was heat at the moment stuff. I, yeah, it hit, hit, hit his arm. But for me, I, I would have been unhappy if that was given against my team, and, and yeah, it would would have been harsh. And 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 yeah, you could easily have given a foul for the one on Gabriel, but there were so many corners, so many just moments where players were jostling one another, and and these things happened. 
that I don't think it stood out that much as a, as a big error. Um, there was no sense of injustice, but yeah, it was um, it was a crackling atmosphere. I've got to say, it, it kept the, what happened was because Newcastle started time wasting very early on in the game. That got the backs up mm. of the Arsenal support. Then we had the fouls. And the referee, I think, handled the game poorly in, in regards to giving out too many easy yellow cards. So that that cranked things up again another level. So um, And then there were the, the incidents with, with the penalty and the handball. So, um, yeah, I understand why Arsenal fans got, got riled. <laughs> but all in all, all in all, I think it was... I think it was probably a fair result, yeah. even though Arsenal were the better team. Um, Newcastle, the way they were without the ball. And and you mentioned Joel Linton and Joe Willock there. They were brilliant examples. I also think Almiron in the first half, because Martinelli was had a bright start to the game as well. But he came back and played as an auxiliary right back to help, help Trippier and... Between them, they, they they shut him down. I thought the Trippier Martin uh, Martinelli duel was a real high yeah. class one. Um, Trippier just about won it, I guess, but it was uh, it was good to watch. You know, on a serious point though, Adrian, going back to the the sort of um, the sense of injustice and and the anger and the frustration, I wonder how much of a lesson and how handy will it be sort of longer term as this season plays out for Arsenal to have had that experience now. Um, it's not April, you know. It's it's not not even halfway through the season, is it? Um, to to sort of feel that pressure and feel that frustration and everything else. How how helpful do you think that might be? Because there are eight points clear at the top of the Premier League as we're recording this. Very helpful because everyone's going to try and copy Newcastle United's tactics. When you're top of the league, teams come to your place and they set up not to lose and they set up to make it an ugly, bitty, scrappy game where it's not free flowing. If that game was open. Arsenal win it 3-0. But Newcastle realised that after five or ten minutes. And they said, right, it's not going to stay like open. this. And everyone else would try to mimic that. So it is a, it's good practice for Arsenal, I think, moving forwards. They're going to have to deal with frustration. They're going to have to deal with um, having to... Patience. Break, yeah, pa- yeah, patience, having to, having to break teams down. And also, I think that the lesson here, and this is what I was pleased about, is that Arsenal picked up quite a lot of yellow cards in the game. Xhaka was one of them, of course, and naturally. And in the past, Arsenal would have lost their discipline at some point there and got a player sent off. I've got no doubt about that. But they'd somehow managed to rein it in. And again, I think that's a good a good lesson for them because there will be games like this between now and the end of the season where, where they get wound up and they're going to have to try to stay calm in the heat at the moment and, and let their football football do the talking. I think it was a miracle no one got sent off in that match given the <laughs> nature of it and given how the referee managed it. Yeah, and Chris, I said before, that, you know, the difference between the experience of the two teams at that game last night, the supporters as well, the Newcastle fans who seemed like they were having some sort of carnival drawing nil-nil at the Emirates Stadium. <laughs> Again, you know, there's something warm and fuzzy about the excitement and Newcastle and being at the top end of the of the Premier League table again. They reverted to type as well, didn't they? 
Yeah, I mean, you've got to remember for Newcastle fans that they're riding the crest of a wave as well that, that Newcastle are on. And going to the Emirates Stadium, the Emirates Stadium has been a graveyard for Newcastle United. They haven't <laughs> scored there since 2014. They get bat- I've been there so many times and seen Newcastle get turned over, barely even have a shot on goal. And they're going to the Emirates. And yes, Arsenal did dominate the match, but Newcastle are going there as, if not quite equals, then certainly their rivals, someone who, who th- there is respect for what Eddie Howe has achieved with Newcastle. And so Newcastle fans have really bought into to what he's doing. There is a real unity, it feels, to everyone at the club. And the pressure isn't on them. They, they are loving the position that they are in. And, and if there was a tinge of disappointment because Newcastle had a goalless draw at home to Leeds United on New Year's Eve, that's because of what they've achieved over the course of, of the last few months. They've been on six successive wins. They've been in the top three in the Premier League. They, they've, they haven't conceded a goal in nine hours. It's just staggering what they, what they have achieved, and Newcastle fans are relishing that. And it's interesting, that sort of defensive... Uh, solidity because it's never something you would have associated with Newcastle United historically everyone talks about Kevin, uh, Kevin Keegan's entertainers even the Sir Bobby Robson side defensively those teams their strength wasn't at the back it was going forward yet Newcastle have really built this defensively and Newcastle fans have bought into that and are just relishing seeing the side put their bodies on the line and really try and defend for their lives yeah. what, what stood out to me watching the game was how much Newcastle defend as a team obviously they've upgraded the keeper huge player Trippier is a is a very very good right back and Botman I think has been the best left-sided centre-back in the Premier League this season absolutely immaculate so you got three upgrades but what stood out was the team and how everybody worked so hard together there were just no gaps and no one switched off it was really annoying actually from an Arsenal perspective (laughs) because you're waiting for someone just to to doze off or get dragged out of position but they didn't and um, and that's down to the good habits that Eddie Howe and his coaching staff have put into the players. It, that doesn't come by chance. It doesn't come by fluke. It comes by taking care of the small details, uh, obviously yeah. working hard on the training ground, but, but it's the little details that I think somebody like Eddie Howe would go into that maybe a Steve Bruce wouldn't have done in the past and, and they've made a huge difference. Right, let's talk transfers then because if we're taking the sort of emotion of the match last night as a lesson for Arsenal... Maybe it was a bit of a lesson as well that they need a little bit more. Uh, Mikel Arteta gave quite a bland answer about improving the squad after the game, as you'd expect. But what are you expecting, Adrian, uh, from Arsenal in this window? There's lots of details, of course, on The Athletic and there'll be updates every single day throughout January on there as well. So mm. please keep an eye on that. But what are we thinking? Despite the frustration of the, of the result, this was the perfect match in regards to Mikel Arteta sending a message to the board about what we actually need this month. Arsenal are in, the, are in an unbelievable position. Eight points clear at the top of the table as we speak. It's, it's fantasy land. It's, it's dream stuff. And now it's as much over to the, to the board as it is to Mikel Arteta and the players because they've got an opportunity here to, to go big this window, to, to beef up a squad that needs beefing up. The thing that will let Arsenal down eventually this season, if they don't win the title, is squad depth. It will be injuries and suspensions that catch them out and the, and the deputies are not quite strong enough to make a difference. And in this match, you'll, you'll have noticed, the only sub that Mikel Arteta made was Tommy Asu for Ben White. This is in a goalless draw where you're relentlessly attacking the opponent. He didn't trust anybody on his bench to improve things. He didn't see anyone there that could offer something better or different that would trouble Newcastle United. And that, 
that speaks volumes. That is that is him basically screaming at the board saying we need at least two attacking players to come in this month because I've got no one to turn to. And I don't I don't mean that disrespectfully to a Marquinhos or a Fabio Vieira. They are good players, but they're young and I don't think they're quite ready to impact a tighter race. If Arsenal bring in two quality forward players, one of whom needs to be an actual striker, it would make a world of difference. Plus a, a midfielder, I think, to, to deputise for Thomas Partey. Bring in three players like that and, and I think Arsenal have a chance I really do yeah Amy Lawrence wrote more or less exactly that on the Athletic as well that it was almost an advert last night for needing attacking reinforcements people can go and read Amy's take of course if they want to Chris what about from your perspective then I mean Newcastle are also doing well to sort of keep a lid on getting carried away with the the transfer element of things that seems to be the one the one um, sort of line of the development that a lot of people are giving Newcastle real respect for the the building slowly, the building sort of within the means as commercial income grows, maybe the transfers will grow. But for the minute, there is very much, uh, you know, a calm feel around the transfer market, like we're talking about Eddie Howe's demeanour on the touchline. What do you expect from Newcastle this month? I certainly don't expect it to be the absolutely frenetic January window that it was last January, which was just absolutely extraordinary. It was a unique situation, which nobody else has ever gone through. Even the summer was fairly busy. The The messages out of the club this month are not to expect as much. They would like a young backup right back to because Yamil Kraft has been out injured for all the season. He doesn't, re, Howe doesn't really seem to fancy Javier Manquillo and Trippier is obviously their, their senior fullback, but they'd like someone else there. The priority really in terms of a senior signing is now a number six. They did want a right-sided forward during the summer, but Miguel Almiron's form means that's no longer as much of a pressing issue. They would still like a forward ideally, but really the focus will be on a number six. Eddie Howe himself is keen to bring someone in if possible to really allow Newcastle to strengthen from a position of strength but he also recognises and he's been told by the board from above that finances aren't necessarily there to strengthen massively this window and if he does strengthen it'll impact what he can do during the summer because Newcastle are still very conscious about FFP the commercial revenue isn't there yet to really grow and be able to compete and that's not just on transfer fees the main issue I think is to do with wages at the moment Newcastle have an inflated wage build how they did previously because they've given out new contracts and they have a lot of players out on loan which they're covering the wages for so I think that ideally Howe would like a number six, but he'd also like a Premier League ready one. And it's it's not necessarily that he's anticipating that will happen. They're like Leicester's Yuri Tillemans have for a long while. They're really like Brighton's Moises Caicedo, but so do a lot of clubs and he will be very, very expensive. So I, I think it's wait and see for Newcastle for now. They are willing to go into the loan market, maybe a loan with an option or an obligation. But I don't think you're going to see more than one or two in, maybe two or three out with someone like Ryan Fraser going out because he's keen to play football. Is there no um, sentiment of just going for it, considering the position that Newcastle are in? Because you've got quite a few of the sort of so-called top teams like Tottenham, like Chelsea, like Liverpool, who are all sort of not where they would expect to be. And it seems like a real opportunity this for Newcastle that they're they're grabbing with both hands. Is there not a sentiment that they could push maybe a little bit more than they should this month to get that that European spot, that Champions League spot? Dare I say it? 
push even for the title in the second half of the year. That's the debate among the fan base, and obviously those conversations have happened within the club, but what's been fascinating really about this takeover is it hasn't really gone the direction anyone expected it to. There hasn't been the fantasy signings yet. They haven't gone, and yes, they've spent more than £200 but they haven't (laughs) signed players that really everyone else was going for. They signed Dan Byrne from Brighton. Nobody else was in for Dan Byrne. Sven Botman, there wasn't massive competition for Bruno Gimaraes that moved before others, but Kieran Trippier, other clubs could have signed him so there is a plan there is a long-term plan and it's been very sensible so far and so at the moment the the feeling is not to just push it because if they were to get in the Champions League this season that would be great but it would be ahead of schedule the one caveat I will make to all of that is in the last two transfer windows when it's looked like Newcastle might not do as much Yasser Al-Ramayn who is the chairman and is also the governor of the, of the public investment fund who Saudi Arabia of Saudi Arabia who won 80% of the club when he is then directly entered transfer discussions that went and spent money to sign Bruno Gimaraes, Dan Byrne and Matt Target on loan in the January and then they went and broke their transfer record to sign Alexander Isak during the summer so if he gets involved suddenly he things could change bag but of oh, cash. <laughs> exactly yes suddenly he just releases some funds but Isak's another interesting one how referred to him last week as like a new signing which can annoy fans at times but essentially he is he's only played three times yeah. Newcastle haven't seen him since September so he is due back in the next week or two and that will be a huge boost as well Okay, brilliant. That's something to keep an eye on, certainly. And it sounds like we need to keep an eye on both of these clubs throughout this month. Of course, we'll have the very latest on The Athletic. You can subscribe now if you're not a subscriber to get all that juicy transfer information. It's £1.99 a month for the first 12 months when you sign up now at theathletic.com forward slash football pod. But for the minute, Adrian and Chris, thank you very much. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Oh, and that's short from Idrissa Gay. And a chance to race clear for Pascal Gross. It's an impudent finish. It's four for Brighton. 
It's an absolute disaster for Everton. A gift of a goal. Well, this goal just sums up the difference between the two teams tonight. That familiar sound at Goodison Park, Everton's 4-1 thrashing by Brighton, prompted an angry action from the fans. And Frank Lampard is under as much pressure as he's ever been at the club as well. The Athletics' Paddy Boyland was there for us. And Paddy, what happened in those six minutes? I'm still trying to come to terms with that myself. It was just a complete capitulation. Even before those six mad minutes, Brighton were clearly the better side. They kind of passed Everton off the park. Everton looked particularly disjointed when they were trying to press and win the ball high up the pitch. And Brighton have just got the quality now to pick through sides like like Everton, particularly when the plans aren't implemented particularly well from a, a tactical perspective. So so I think things just snowballed and one goal quickly became two and two quickly became three. And I think that is in part because maybe the players aren't able to deal with the situation. Why do you think that is? Well, I think they've just encountered so many disappointments and have been part of so many failed regimes that setbacks are also are almost amplified and sometimes they're unable to maybe rouse themselves to go again. That's, that's just kind of a working theory of mine. But the other side of this is Goodison Park is not an easy place to play football right now. And that's not to say the fans are a huge problem here and the reason why Everton are losing, but it is not an easy place to play football. It, it kind of gets edgy um, when players aren't playing forward quickly and aggressively. Some fans are in, inclined to get on, on, on the players' backs. And I think that means that you're more susceptible then to a collapse like the one we saw um, last night. And, and yeah, it, it, it was it was messy. It was it, it was messy. I think I described it as a chaotic mess in the piece, and it's not looking better when I watch it again. No, not at all. And obviously, people can go and read your take on last night on the Athletic at the moment. There was a tweet which seems to have sort of encapsulated the, the mood amongst Evertonians as well that, that went viral uh, from a guy called Matt Flusk. I'm not saying the Everton game was bad, but I left on 4-0 and the Uber driver who took us back into town was also at the game. There's two reactions here if you're an Evertonian. Um, I've not yet decided which approach I'm going to take personally, given that I cover the club. Um, it, it is laugh or cry. I think that sums up, though, what's happening right now because on one hand, you've got a fan base, part of the fan base that turned and flipped during the game. So there were chance of sack the board. From where I was sat in the main stand press box, people were venting the frustration at Lampard, at certain players. Dominic Calvert-Lewin appeared to receive some boos as he left the pitch. Um, however misguided you think that might be, blaming him. Um, so fans are venting the frustration at, at everyone. Um, but I suppose the, the, the issue is not just down to one person. And uh, you've got a situation now where the, the fans recognise that, they've almost taken their frustrations and, and, and are centering them now on somebody else other than the manager and on the players. They believe that for, the, for them, I think, after multiple failed regimes, the book has to start with somebody other than the manager and the players. There's actually been 11 changes of managers in about six and a half years, if you include the caretaker spells of Duncan Ferguson and David Unsworth. I mean, all those managers can't be wrong, can they? They can't all be bad. That, that's the conclusion those fans have, have come to, and you can see why they've 
they've reached that conclusion, can't you? I, I think you're right on that stat. I've got it down as seven permanent managers and four caretaker managers, or yeah. four caretaker spells. Yeah, two uh, caretakers, David Unsworth and Duncan Ferguson. Duncan yeah. Ferguson had it on a couple of occasions, of course, in just under seven years. So that, that's massive churn. To me, that shows that this goes beyond merely the groups of players that have been there for those periods of time and the, the eventual scapegoats, the managers, it shows that the direction of the club, um, the governance, the functioning of it has, has not been what it should be. Um, and I think last night clarified that perfectly. You had the juxtaposition of, of Brighton, the, the very definition of a coherent, well-run club, making really astute purposes. I think Brighton know exactly what they are and recruit to that model. I mean, finding players like Alexis McAllister, who didn't start last night, um, Moises Caicedo, who I thought was the outstanding player on the pitch, even though he probably won't take all the headlines. At one point, I was looking at the battle down Everton's right, and it was Nathan Patterson and Dwight McNeil for Everton, up against Mitoma and Purvis Estupinian for, for Brighton. And the Everton lads cost more money combined than the two Brighton ones. But there was no contest. Mitoma had Patterson on toast, unfortunately. Um, and he is electric and that that, that can happen. Um, and McNeil didn't get much joy at all against Estupinian, who looks like a very astute replacement for Mark Kukurea. So Brighton are almost able to weather the storms. And when, when somebody like Graham Potter leaves or when Kukurea leaves, you're able to move on and recruit within that model and find people that fit in perfectly. But I don't think Everton... Kai Sado himself, yeah. you said he was one of the best players on the pitch. He, he was a ready-made replacement for Yves Basuma when he was sold yeah. to Tottenham. It, it was That was already in-house. Even. Yeah, and, and some would argue they've even upgraded in, in certain positions. Yes. Um, I don't yeah. think Everton know what they are. I don't think Everton have known what they are. Are they the kind of the faded Galacticos of the Carlo Ancelotti era? Are they the more pragmatic... Rafa Benitez bodies are they uh, off the top of my head are they Marco Silva's progressive 4-2-3-1 there have been so many are they the team that tries to play the way that you've been describing against Brighton or are they the team that, that shut up shop and, and battle and scrap for a point at the Etihad Stadium in the space of just a few days yeah and, and that, that when we talk about coherence that that's what I'm, I'm on about really you, you, you've got two versions of Everton right now the, the Everton that stayed up last season under Lampard were pragmatic. It was mainly three or five at the back and it was shut up shop and, and look for a moment of inspiration from Richarlison, mainly. Uh, Richarlison's obviously not there now and that, that's a huge problem in of itself. Um, but this season, I think Lampard's looked where possible to take the team in a new direction, to become altogether more progressive. 4-3-3 instead of three at the back normally, although that wasn't the case against City. Two pressing number eights trying to win the ball high up the pitch. But I, I don't think it's been implemented particularly well. And every time they played that way, really, they've they've come unstuck. It's not one win in eleven in in, in all competitions. Um, so the City game, I think, for some Everton fans, was maybe curiously the last straw because it showed that there was a different way that they could play and defend and show resilience in that system. Ben Godfrey did very well coming back into the side for that game. Um, and there looked to be a bit of fight about Everton, um, a much-needed yeah. fight. I mean, that dissipated in the new system, in the change system. 
and in, in the, the 4-1 capitulation against against Brighton. So it's kind of back to the drawing board. Lampard's got to, if he stays, if he remains, he's got a huge decision to make. Does he continue down the path he's going on or is it back to last season and, and batting down the hatches? Will he stay? Uh, we're still waiting for clarity on that. To, to be honest, uh, we're told the early suggestion is that the decision will largely, but not solely, rest on Farhad Mashiri, the owner's wishes, um, but I mean, it's quite clear that Lampard's under huge pressure now. Uh, you, you look at the atmosphere around Goodison, you look at his his recent record, his points per game total as Everton manager, which is now under one point per game, I believe, uh, since, he, wow. since he arrived last January, late last January. Um, I think Everton have tried to give him time. They could have some, uh, not, not necessarily us journalists, but some fans were... We're advocating for for Lampard to leave before the World Cup break, and I think to be honest, that was probably if you were going to sack a manager, that was the opportune time to do it. Because you had six weeks in which to find somebody else and start training the players, and prepare for January as well. New yeah. methods. Doing it now brings its own problems because Everton are also trying to sign players to make the squad stronger so they can get themselves out of a relegation battle. Having all the uncertainty swirling around about Lampard's future does not help them do that because what kind of player are they looking to buy? What kind of system are they looking to play? And what kind of manager are they looking to bed them in with? Well, it's also the players looking at Everton and thinking, do I want to go there now into this situation when I don't even know who my manager might be by the time I've played a month there? Yeah, it's possible. And I was looking at Levi Colwell last night for, for Brighton. He's a player that Lampard is an admirer of and has been an admirer of. He's obviously going back to his time at Chelsea and his Chelsea connections. But I don't know why, if you were Bright, uh, if you were Chelsea, sorry, you would send Levi Colwell to Everton on loan over Brighton. That seems like a a, a pretty obvious decision to make if, if you've got that choice. And that's the problem Everton are going to encounter now. They haven't got a lot of money. The deals that they're going to need to do in January are largely maybe not ex- exclusively, but largely loans for, for uh, targets like Anthony Alangu of Manchester United. If he were to become available, he'd be somebody of interest. But then also structured deals as they had to do over the summer where maybe they pay 20 million for Dwight McNeil, but that's over multiple installments and, and multiple years. They're not swimming in money. Um, so that complicates matters further. Um, like I say, we are still waiting for clarity on Lampard's future. I don't think that decision has even been communicated internally yet but I think it's fair to say he's he's on thin ice yeah well we are recording late morning on Wednesday so it goes without saying keep your eye very closely on Paddy's social media feeds and also The Athletic for the very latest on Frank Lampard's future but let's look ahead to Friday then Paddy if we can Manchester United in form and Everton are away there in the FA Cup and it probably would just top off all the problems if they were to go out of the cup as well yeah I'm, I'm a little bit torn on and have been for a while on, on the FA Cup and, and also the Carabao Cup, to be honest, because it, it's felt for several months now like the only focus this season for Everton uh, will be on survival, on staying in the Premier League. That That's almost the be-all and end-all here. Ordinarily, Everton, kind of traditionally in mid-table in the Premier League, they'd want to target the cup competitions and they want to end that long drought without a trophy. But I think it's just about self-preservation right now and scrambling through where possible. If they were somehow to go to United and win on Friday, I think that would be a huge boost. 
confidence-wise, um, it would it would signal kind of an end to this nasty chapter in midweek. Um, but I think that's probably highly unlikely right now. One other problematic thing for Everton is that Everton will have a bigger allocation at United on Friday. So you're going to have between nine and 10,000 fans in the away end. And typically away end fans, I think, are, are, are more vocal, more vociferous, um, quicker to voice positives and negatives. Uh, so the, 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 there is potential there for another display, another demonstration of, of their disappointment, of their anger. I think that's the most interesting thing about Friday. It's not whether Everton win or get through it. What's the atmosphere like in that away end? How do the players respond? Is Lampard still there? And if so, how has he responded to the adversity of this week? It, it will be fascinating, but maybe not necessarily for, for reasons you'd expect and not necessarily because Everton are likely to win the, the, the trophy drought. No, it's only 48 hours away or just over. It feels like there's a lot to sort out oh, before that, that first ball is kicked <laughs> at Old Trafford as well. Uh, I'll let you get back to it. Thanks, Paddy. Okay, well, that's it for today. Thank you to Paddy and also Adrian and Chris for joining us on the podcast. Remember, keep your eyes on The Athletic for the very latest in this January transfer window. If you're not a subscriber, you can sign up now for just £1.99 a month for the first 12 months. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. But thank you for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.